Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Historically Speaking Podcast, Uncommon History with an Unconventional Pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 22 years. Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Historically Speaking Podcast. I think this is the first time that starting out a podcast, we don't know if this is going to be one episode or two. Yes, I'm not sure myself. Uh, we talked about this, and because this is such a fascinating person, I don't know how long this is going to go. <laughs> well, we're about to find out. Yes, we are. So today's episode is about... Episode Napoleon. 36 is on Napoleon. Yes. Napoleon Bonaparte. I have heard of him. Yes, I think almost everybody has heard of Napoleon. I uh, hope so. Yes. Many military historians think he is the greatest military commander ever. There's a dispute about that. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, uh, Julius Caesar, Hannibal, a couple others. But uh, Napoleon is oftentimes considered a military genius and the greatest commander ever. That's impressive. He also had other enormous abilities, particularly administrative abilities. Uh, he was not just a military commander. And uh, he had elements of statesmanship, too. But he had many negatives as well. Right, which we're going to get into. Yes, we are. So why don't you set the stage? I know we're in France. Yes. And in France, just barely. You see, Napoleon was born on the island of Corsica on August fifteenth, 1769 in a yacht show in Corsica. Corsica had been sold by Genoa to France in 1768. So you see, Napoleon was born a Frenchman just barely by a year. And there was a, a Corsican independence movement that existed then under a man named Paoli. And uh, Napoleon would, as a young man, be very infatuated with that and would seek Corsican independence. But after a while, he gave up on that and became thoroughly 100% a Frenchman. So he grew up on this island. He grew up on, on Corsica, and he actually, his first language was uh, a dialect of Italian that was spoken in, on, on Corsica. It wasn't French. In fact, his father would send him and his older brother Joseph to the mainland in order to learn French and then go into uh, military training. So I guess Italy wasn't an option. No. Napoleon's father was Carlo Buonaparte, and his mother was Letizia Ramalino. How do you like that Italian pronunciation? Oh, that's quite delightful. <laughs> yes, isn't it? Oh, uh, yes. And uh, she was a great beauty. Uh, his father would die very early on. He was a lawyer. He would be only like 39 years old. He would die of stomach cancer. Napoleon would die of stomach cancer. One of his brothers would die of stomach cancer. It ran in the family. Wow. But his mother would outlive Napoleon by about 15 years. She would live into old age. And she gave birth to uh, 13 children, eight of whom lived to adulthood. The Bonapartes came from a minor noble family stretching the whole way back at least to the 16th century. So they probably had some means. No, not really. Actually, they kind of scraped by. A lot of, a lot of nobles on the continent tended to be poor. Uh, what, what's interesting about nobility on the continent, like in France, is you had hundreds of thousands of nobles, because if you were a noble, everybody in your family was noble, cousins, uncles, everybody. Whereas English nobility, which was the most prized nobility in Europe, the only person that was noble was the actual 
individual given the noble title. So even the wife of a duke or a viscount or an earl, even though she had a courtesy title, a countess, a viscount, as a duchess, she even wasn't noble. His children weren't noble. They had courtesy titles. So you had 200,000 French who were nobles, and you had maybe 200, 300 English who were nobles. That's why English nobility was so prized. That's a huge difference. Yes, because only the individual himself would be ennobled in England. I see. So being a noble in a lot of European countries wasn't that big a deal. Okay. A lot of nobles uh, in France. And, and some that's other, what they were. And that's what they were, a minor nobility. Okay. No, not rich at all. In fact, sometimes it was... But they obviously had enough money to send their two oldest sons... Yes, they did. Uh, over to the continent. Napoleon, uh, at nine years of age, was sent with his older brother, Joseph. He had um, three other brothers, Lucien and Jerome and Louis, and he had three sisters. Where were they sent? Well, I don't know where they were sent. I just know that Joseph and Napoleon... Well, that's what I Napoleon, mean, because that's what we were Oh, they were sent about. to Autun. And for just months, and then Napoleon began his military training at uh, Brienne, and he would end up uh, after five years at Brienne for one year at the military college in Paris. In 1785, at the age of 16, Napoleon would graduate and become a second lieutenant. Now, would this be equivalent to our, say, West Point or something? Uh, something like that, that analogy, I think. I mean, Saint-Cyr, which Napoleon will found, is really the great military academy in France. It's really the equivalent to West Point. The one that he founded? Yes. As opposed he, to the one he when attended? he was first consul. Keep in mind, Napoleon is functioning as a very young man, as a teenager and so on, during the last years of the old regime in France, of the Bourbon dynasty and so on. Now, France in the 18th century had loads of problems. It had financial problems, it had social problems. It, it was really, uh, there was a great deal of discontent in France. And as many people know, in 1789, the French Revolution would break out. Yes, I know very well. I did the musical. That's right. That's right. A Tale of Two Cities. Yes, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, the musical it opened up in 08, didn't it? It did indeed. Yes. The very day the stock market crashed, actually. Oh, yes, September 18, 2008. Great timing. Yes. But it was a great musical. Yes, it was, actually. Too bad it uh, didn't last very long. Uh, Napoleon was 20 years old or 19, 20 years old when the French Revolution broke out. Now, the French Revolution, uh, the immediate cause was the tremendous financial distress in France. But there were underlying causes other than economic ones. A lot of discontent among the peasantry, among the middle class, uh, too many privileges for the aristocracy, corruption, all of that. Now, the French Revolution will last for 10 years, from 1789 to 1799. It will go through four stages. The first stage is a relatively moderate stage, from 1789 to 1791. This is the period of the National Assembly when a constitution, the first constitution in French history, is formed. There's a little violence, like the Bastille being torn down and soldiers ripped apart, but it's a relatively moderate stage. The second stage is that of the Legislative Assembly from 91 to 92. Things start to get out of hand by 1792. You mean as far as the violence? Yes. And then the third stage is the stage of the National Convention from 1792 to 1795. It is during this third stage that the Reign of Terror occurs from September of 93 to July of 94. And a lot of people lose their head. This is when Madame Guillotine is Madame introduced. Madame Guillotine cut off a lot of heads in Paris alone, let alone other cities. And other people were shot. Some were drowned. drowned. Maximilien Robespierre was the head of the Committee of Public Safety, or de facto head anyway. 
and uh, Danton and others. Uh, the revolution really got out of hand and very nasty and very bloody. And it wasn't just in Paris. Oh, no. It was all over France. It was in one city after another. And to complicate all this, France went to war as early as 1792 against, um, against Austria and Prussia initially. But by 1793, France was at war with England. Oh, dear. They are just a mess. Oh, yes. Well, there would be actually seven coalitions that would be formed against France between 1792 and 1815. And with the exception of the first coalition, the other six sees Napoleon in power. He will be first first consul, which I'll mention more about in a bit, and then he will be emperor. So seven coalitions will be formed against France in that period of time. What does that 17, mean, coalitions that? formed against France? Military coalitions. Military coalitions against France, England, uh, Austria, okay. Prussia, Russia, minor political entities like Piedmont, and so on, Spain, Portugal. Is so, it because they all saw France was in such disarray that it was the time to strike? Well, not only was France in disarray, not only did the revolution uh, cut off the head of the French king, Louis XVI, and his wife, Marie Antoinette, they both died in 1793, Madame Guillotine. Right. But the French wanted to export their revolution all over Europe. How dare they? Yes. <laughs> this is what really irritated the rest of Europe. I mean, it was bad enough that the French revolution had gotten bloodier and bloodier as time went on. But... Now the French wanted to bring revolutionary fervor throughout Europe. And this is the main... To what end? To create republics because the, uh, the French Revolution did away with the monarchy. That was done away with in 1792. And a republic was established. This is the first republic in French history from 1792 to 1804. And the French wanted to export their ideas throughout Europe. And one monarch after another... The Tsar of Russia, King of Prussia, the uh, Austrian Emperor, the British monarch, and so on. They, they couldn't deal with this. And in fact, at first, the French forces were not very successful, but then they became quite good. And Napoleon, as a young man, is fighting at this early st in this early part of the revolution. In 1793, for instance, he was uh, the English had taken Toulon in southern France, and the French were trying to get it back. They were besieging the English in Toulon, and, and Napoleon did very well. He was advanced to a brigadier general status in 1793. But keep in mind, he doesn't have any political power at this point. He's just a soldier. He's just a soldier. Who's uh, moving up in the ranks. Who's moving up in the ranks. And then what happens in 1794 with the Thermidorian reaction, when Robespierre and others, are, especially Robespierre, are executed and things begin to take a more conservative turn, uh, a more moderate turn. Napoleon was in a lot of trouble because he knew Robespierre, and especially Robespierre's younger brother. So Napoleon was put in prison for a while. He could have lost his Because head. of his relationship. Because of his associations with the uh, Robespierre's, yes. And he was considered perhaps too radical. Now, the last stage of the French Revolution, which I have not yet mentioned, is from 1795 to 1799. This is the stage of the directory. Five directors were set up as the executive of France. This is definitely a conservative reaction to the third stage, that of the National Convention, which included the Reign of Terror. So this last four years of the French Revolution is a kind of a retreat from the excessive zeal that existed at the height of the revolution.
But France is still at war with many countries. What a mess. Oh, it's just, yeah, it really is a mess. Now, in the midst of all of this, Napoleon begins to really rise to power. What happened was in October of 1795. So wait, we left off where he's in jail. He's in jail, but uh, he wrote some letters indicating how he was dedicated to the revolution at its best and, and things to that effect. And he got out of jail. Okay. And this is really important. This is, this is the event that begins to really propel him to prominence. In October of 1795, okay, and keep in mind, he's only, what, 26 years old? That sounds good. Uh, the convention was coming to an end, and the directory was about to come into power. And there was a, an ugly Paris mob that wanted to go after the convention. It's almost as though the Paris mob is the same mob year after year. It's like Rent-A-Mob. Rent-A-Mob. I yes. like that. Rent-A-Mob. And uh, many of the legislators uh, were feared for their life, and they, they, they just wanted to do something with this Paris mob. Well, Napoleon just happened to be in Paris then, and so they called on this young man. He had been stripped of his brigadier generalship, and he was back to being a lieutenant. And uh, he just hauled out some artillery, and he just shot a lot of the mob down dead. These are just this regular a, local Parisians. Yes, the Renamov that we're talking about. Wow, and he <laughs> it's just no one, it's plowed no one them in down. History, it's known in history as the Whiff of Grapeshot. Okay. The that's... Whiff of Grapeshot, October of 95. Now, the legislators, the, the directors coming in in this last stage of the French Revolution were very grateful to Napoleon for this. So overnight, uh, basically by early 1796, he was made commander of the Army of the Interior, but he didn't want that command. He wanted the command of the Army of Italy because the French were fighting a lot of places at this time. And one of the places the French were fighting was in Italy. And there was a French army there called the Army of Italy. All right. And he wanted that command. And he got it on March 2nd, 1796. This still very young man. So the incident happened in October. In 95. And now this is... And this is March, March of, 96, of 96, and he is now made the commander of the Army of Italy. So he got what he wanted. He got what he, he wanted. He must have been very persuasive in these letters that he's writing. Napoleon could be very persuasive in many different ways. Uh, this is a remarkable human being. He is no ordinary mortal. I see. Uh, and it is the consensus of many, and I agree with this, he's really a genius. I think his IQ must have been something like 180, 190, maybe 200. I, I, his IQ was off the charts. So he's up there with Einstein. Yep, I think so. I think he was a genius of war. Wow. And also, uh, ex as I mentioned before, he had other talents, especially administrative talents. Now, on March 9th, a week after he got command of the Army of Italy and before he went to Italy to take command of the Army, he married Josephine. Oh. As in Napoleon and Josephine. Sure. Josephine had been previously married to a man named Beauharnais, but he had died. He had been uh, one of the victims during the Reign of Terror. He had been a general in the French army, but he um, lost his head, literally. Oh, he She had been guillotine. raised in the West Indies, and she gave her first husband two children, a boy and a girl, Eugene and Hortense. Eugene would grow up to uh, become a, a pretty good soldier and very loyal to Napoleon, to his stepfather. And Hortense would end up marrying one of uh, Napoleon's brothers. Oh, that was convenient. Well, Napoleon kind of forced that once he was in power. Yes. Ah. She, uh, she married Louis. Anyway. Uh, so had they been dating a while? How did they meet? Actually, they met. Uh, Josephine was a throwaway from one of the directors named Barat. And, a uh, throwaway. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and kind of uh, ended up with Napoleon after Barat. And Napoleon fell, you know, the old cliche, head over heels in love with Josephine. He just uh, 
was smitten with her and uh, married her on March 9th, a week after he got command of the Army of Italy. They had a honeymoon for two days. And on March 11th, he made his way to Italy. And this is where... Without her. Without her. Yeah, she didn't accompany him. Okay. And this is where his star really begins to rise with his command of the Army of Italy. Now, just think about this. Uh, this this army had been fighting in Italy for years, and it had a lot of older generals and so on. And now they've been told that this 26, 27-year-old is going to be their commander. And Napoleon's only five foot six. It's not like he's impressive in a physical way. And so they're very skeptical. Oh, my gosh, who have they pawned off on us? And, who is uh, this little dude yes. coming to well, take Napoleon over? Well, Napoleon called a meeting of his major officers when he first arrived. And he began to ask pointed questions and made many statements, and they were stunned, stunned by his knowledge. In fact, when the meeting ended, one of the generals named Masséna said to another general, Ogeru, we have met our master. Okay, Napoleon so they recognized. had this star presence that very few people had. He must have had some charisma. Oh, extraordinary. Yes. And, you know, he's brilliant and he's effective. Now, he begins these military campaigns in Italy, 96 into 97. Now, what part of Italy are we in? Northern Italy. Okay. Okay. And he's fighting principally the Austrians, but he's fighting some of their allies, too. And he will just clean up against, a, over a year and a half time, early 96 to late 97, Napoleon wins one victory after another in, in, in northern Italy, especially at the Battle of Mantua. And his reputation is growing. All this news is getting back to France under the directory. And he's becoming this very famous individual. And he's his becoming men a become, rock star. He's a rock star. And his men become devoted to him. That's another thing about Napoleon. So many of his soldiers, uh, whether officers or enlisted men, were absolutely devoted to him. They would, follow him. they would have followed him into hell. That's amazing. There's not very many commanders that you can say that about. I think you can say that about Robert E. Lee and the Confederate forces he led, especially the Army of Northern Virginia. They would have followed Lee anywhere, and a few others too. But Napoleon was one of them. Well, he knocks the Austrians out of the war. And he actually, this, this is where he shows his diplomatic skill. Because he negotiates, he does not the director, he, he negotiates the treaty with the Austrians. It's the Treaty of Campo Formio, which is late 1797. And he gets a very good deal. For instance, the Austrian Netherlands, what is now Belgium, now becomes part of France. Oh. Yes. So Napoleon showed his diplomatic skills here early on. So I just have a question. Mm -hmm. Are the Italians allied with him? Well, don't forget, Italy is not a unified country at this time. It's divided into many polities like the Kingdom of Naples, the Papal States, uh, and so on, Piedmont, etc. So some are neutral, some sided with the Austrians. But as Napoleon becomes a winner... <laughs> Everybody wants to be with the winners. Yes. And, uh, and, and this idea of promoting uh, republics is going on all this time that Napoleon is beating the Austrians and others militarily. So they're establishing republics in a lot of places, like Switzerland becomes the Helvetian Republic, and Northern Italy becomes the Cisalpine Republic, and Genoa becomes the Ligurian Republic, and Naples becomes the Parthenopian okay, Republic. I, I okay, see you where get this the is idea? Going. All right. And Holland becomes the Batavian Republic. Okay. Yes. And, and, and the monarchs of Europe, like in, in England and in Russia and in Prussia, they're watching all this and they're thinking, oh my God, our thrones are in danger. Who is this guy? Yeah, and who is this guy? So Napoleon comes back a very famous man 
at the end of 1797. In fact, he's so famous that the directors, the five directors, are kind of jealous of him and wary of him. Uh-oh, that can mean trouble. And understandably, they uh, realized that this was a man who wanted a lot of power. Oh, they recognized that. I think at least some of them did, yes. Now, Napoleon had knocked virtually everybody out of the war, all right, except England. They actually uh, asked Napoleon to consider an invasion of England. He went up to northern France, took a look at the channel and so on, and he basically told the directors, it's completely impractical, not with the British Navy. There's no way this can be done. So then he suggested something to the directors that they kind of liked because they kind of wanted to get him out of their hair because he was so popular and they were worried about him. Taking over. Yeah. He suggested that the way to get at Britain was to go and take Egypt. Wait, what? Yes, to go to Egypt. At that time, it was technically under the Ottoman Empire, which was, uh, at by the late 18th century, the Ottoman Empire was a shadow of its former self. It had really reached its peak in the 16th and uh, wait, 17th I century. I don't get this. We'll show them. We're going to take Egypt. Well, <laughs> yes, because uh, Egypt was a key to India, where Britain was, and Egypt was a, a conduit, and the British were very much involved in the Mediterranean, and Napoleon felt that if he could go into Egypt, he could stymie the entire British influence in the Mediterranean. So, in 1798, and he, this will last until 1799, Napoleon's in Egypt, and he takes a fairly large army there. He actually captured Malta, the island of Malta, on the way to Egypt. Hmm. Took it from the Knights of St. John. Uh, the British will take it from the French, and uh, the British would keep it until the 1960s. Too bad he didn't grab the Maltese Falcon. Yes, the Maltese Falcon, but that's an entirely different story. Charles V, 16th century, and all of that. We'll in get any to case, that. he's in Egypt. Now, he actually, when he went to Egypt, Napoleon had an inquiring mind about almost everything. So he took scientists, he took linguists, etc. And it's while he's in Egypt defeating the Mamelukes, who were this uh, slaveocracy that controlled Egypt, theoretically beholden to the Ottoman Sultan in Istanbul. It was while he was in Egypt that, especially in 1799, that one of his soldiers found something called the Rosetta Stone, oh, which you probably have heard of. I have indeed. Yes, it's just it was just an accidental. One of his soldiers. One of his soldiers came across it. Well, the Rosetta Stone had three languages engraved upon the stone: Ancient Greek, Demotic, which was a late form of Egyptian, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, loads of linguists, many people knew how to read ancient Greek, and the assumption was made that what was written in ancient Greek on this Rosetta Stone was also what was written in Demotic and Hieroglyphics. And English and French linguists over the course of decades studied this, and by the 1820s, uh, Hieroglyphics was cracked, and they could read Egyptian Hieroglyphics, the knowledge of which had been lost uh, by the end of the ancient world. Wow. Yeah. Now, Napoleon, this was actually in 1799 when the uh, Rosetta Stone was found. Napoleon in 1799 goes up into what is now Israel, into Palestine, into Syria. He's just getting around. He's getting, yeah, he really is. And uh, with the exception of Accra, which he was thwarted from taking because there was a British uh, garrison there, he's uh, fairly successful there. Then he comes back to Egypt. He defeats a Turkish army uh, there in 1799. And... One very negative thing occurred for Napoleon when he was in Egypt. On August 1st, 1798, when he hadn't been there very long, Viscount Nelson destroyed Napoleon's fleet in the Battle of the Nile. Now, this is this is seven years before Nelson will defeat 
the combined Franco-Spanish fleet at Trafalgar. Of course, we covered that in our very first episode with respect to what happened to... Uh, to his body. To his body he after Nelson died. But this is seven years before that. Now, what this does is Napoleon's army is still intact in Egypt, but he has no way back for his whole army. Nelson basically decimated... Oh, because they all came... Nelson decimated the fleet in the Battle of the Nile, August 1st, 1798. So Napoleon makes the decision in 1799, late 1799, he would lead most of his army in Egypt, and he would make his way back to France, because word was getting back to On him. On land. Well, actually, he took four or five ships back. They were smaller ships, and he was almost captured on the way back by the British. That would have changed everything. Boy, yes, it would have. But he kind of uh, abandoned his army. A lot of them <gasps> suffered a great deal. That's uh, terrible. Yes. Shame uh, on him. Napoleon, well, okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, Napoleon could be callous at times. I mean, uh, they would follow him into hell, but yet. Well, uh, by this time, the directory was very unpopular, and it's 1799, and Napoleon comes back, and in November of 1799, something known as the Coup of Brumaire occurs. This is what exalts Napoleon to political power. The Coup of Brumaire overthrew the directory, there's a lot of details to it. It's not important to go into it. Okay, good. Okay. But the coup of Brumaire in November of 99 overthrew the directory. And the next month in December of 1799, a new constitution is promulgated. By whom? This is promulgated with under Napoleon's direction. It's known as the Constitution of the Year 8. Because during the French Revolution, the French were so revolutionary, they did away with the traditional Julian calendar and set up their own calendar. Oh, right. This is their you own. Know? And they even system. renamed the months, you know, Brumaire, Vendemer, and so on. Those silly French. Yeah, there's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, they, the French created a fascinating civilization, uh, but oftentimes they never tire of uh, letting everybody know that. And look at the way they wanted to promote their revolution all through Europe. I mean, they had a sense of uh, self-righteousness, which annoyed many individuals. I can imagine. Yes. Well, Napoleon in December of 1799, under the new constitution, this new constitution set up a tricameral legislature and three consuls, first, second, and third consul. Well, guess who the first consul is? Let me guess. It's, yes. Yes. Napoleon, at the age of 30, becomes first consul and the most powerful man in France. Okay, And then. the second and third consuls were absolutely insignificant. They're not, they're not really important at all. Uh, Lebrun and Arcambasseré. Uh, so Napoleon basically, I mean, the, it was an elaborate constitution, but basically Napoleon's in charge of everything. Just what he wanted. Yep. He's first consul from 1799 until 1804. It is during the consulate period of four and a half years or so that most historians think Napoleon does his best work. For instance, the Code Napoleon. He completely revised the legal system, which is still used to this day. Did he base it on something else? Yes, he based it on Roman law. Okay. And uh, we have the survival of Roman law because of Justinian. Remember, we did Justinian and Theodora as one of the marriages. The sensational marriages. Yes, sensational marriages. And, of course, that goes back to the 6th century, and he's the one who codified it in the Corpus Juris Civilis. And... Napoleon completely revised the French law under the Code Napoleon and, and additional codes, a code of uh, criminal procedure, a code of civil procedure, etc. He also made sure that brigandage that was existing in France, a lot of robbers and so on, they were all done away with. He used the army to make sure that a lot of the, your average Frenchman would be safe. So you see the average Frenchman would be very grateful to Napoleon. Oh, so he kind of cleaned things up. 
Yes. He also, during the revolution, before Napoleon was ever in power, the old provinces had been done away with, and 83 departments, departments had been established in their place. He revised that to some extent and made them uh, very effective. And local elections were basically done away with by Napoleon. Even mayors were appointed by the central government. So it was a very tops-down situation. But it worked. It was very effective. It was, it was well run as long as Napoleon was in charge. Napoleon also originated the Banque de France, the Bank of France. So there would be a national bank that there could be trust in, and that bank still exists. Since it was the national bank, it had a certain uh, believability, a certain credence, a certain integrity that uh, local banks didn't have. Napoleon also established the Legion of Honor, the Great Awards, the Legion of Honor. Oh, he established he that. He established it, which still exists, of course. Yes. Napoleon made a very interesting observation. He said, you know, the French don't so much care about equality and liberty as they do about honor. And I think he, I mean, he had a great insight into the French, and I think he's correct there. Of course, the Legion of Honor has been given to many people. Mark Twain was awarded it, and when he was asked if he had been awarded the Legion of Honor, Twain replied... <laughs> He said, yes, I have been given that award, but few escaped that distinction. Very Twain-like. And he also established a concordat with the Pope. The French Revolution really alienated the Catholic Church. There's a lot of details of that, like the civil constitution of the clergy in 1790 and so on. But suffice it to say that the French Republic and the papacy were at loggerheads. And Napoleon understood it was a bad idea to have the Catholic Church not on your side. Oh, okay. He, uh, now, Napoleon himself wasn't wasn't really religious. I mean, he said, when I'm in Egypt, I'm a Muslim. When I'm in France, I'm a Catholic, and, and so on. Uh, I don't think he... I mean, he might have believed in some kind of higher power in a philosophical way, but... He probably uh, thought he was the higher power. Well, <laughs> maybe he did, yes. I mean, I'm pretty sure he thought he was the most capable man he knew, but there was good reason for him to think that. He was extremely capable. So he reached a concordat with the new pope, Pius VII. Pius VII would be pope from 1800 to 1823. And in 1801, uh, while first consul, he reached a concordat with the church, which recognized the Catholic church as the church of the vast majority of Frenchmen, even though freedom of worship was allowed. And it allowed Napoleon to appoint bishops, and then the pope would confirm them. And so a kind of deal was struck between Catholicism, between the papacy and Napoleon, but then Napoleon snuck in something called the Organic Articles after the Concordat, which gave complete power over the church to him. Of course. And Pius VII complained, but what could he do? What could he do? Right. But Napoleon made certain that the Catholic Church was on his side, not against him, as it was during much of the French Revolution, and another shrewd move on his part. And you can even see, you know, he also engaged in a lot of educational reforms. And if you look at the books that the uh, children studied then, it was about how, you know, we owe devotion to God and to Jesus and to Napoleon, <laughs> to the first consul, wow. and eventually uh, to the emperor. So uh, Napoleon's in control of so much here. I mean... He's really calling the shots. He's calling the, the strings, shots. And, whatever you want to call it. And in addition to this, while he's first consul, he's going to destroy the second coalition against France, which originated in 1798 when the directory still existed and would last till 1801. So in 1800, he goes uh, through the Swiss Alps and ends up in Italy again to fight the Austrians. Again? Again. The Austrians are again uh, fighting against Napoleon, and others are too, England, etc. And at Marengo, 
In 1800, Napoleon achieves a great victory against the Austrians and eventually wipes them out in ancillary battles. And in 1801, the Treaty of Lunéville is signed, which is a pretty harsh treaty against the Austrians. But it just exalts Napoleon's reputation all the more, not just in France, but throughout Europe. Well, I would think at this point he'd be feared. He is feared. Who is this guy? Who How is does this he... little shrimp? Well, I think that there are some people who are short that have such a presence Within a minute, you don't notice their height. He must have been one of those people. Oh, absolutely. Because it's funny because culture has made him into this tiny, tiny little person who was like maybe five feet tall. Yeah, sometimes you see that Napoleon was 5'1 or 5'2. That's not true. But he wasn't 5'10 either. He was around... And he was my height. He was around 5'6". Yeah, yes. he was my height. Yes. So he was like Tom Cruise height. Okay. <laughs> I think he's about that or so. Uh so the War of the Second Coalition comes to an end in 1801, and the only enemy left to France is England. England would be the most constant enemy. Uh, Forever. France. Well, if you see this in the larger context, the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars are the sixth of the six great wars fought between France and England between 1689 and 1815. It is the struggle for world power. And with the final defeat of Napoleon and so on at Waterloo in 1815, the English are victorious. All right, after oh, this don't give it away. Well, I think everybody knows about Waterloo in Okay, it, at least through the Abba song. And that's why the 19th century is really the British century, because after 125 years of fighting the French, uh, they, vent, they eventually proved victorious. Ah, oh, well, And don't forget, the fifth of the sixth wars is the Ameri War of the American Revolution, when the French side with the Americans against the British. That's right. Yes. And you know what? This might be a great place. To end. <laughs> to end part one <laughs> of this episode. This is a lot of information for people to digest. Yes. There's a, you know, I, whatever. Yeah, there's a and lot of And you know, I just feel like I'm getting started. I know. That's why I figured now's a good time. Yeah. Folks, do you understand why my wife is a saint? I know. That's the problem. Ask you one question. Yeah. And you get a two-hour answer. Well, Welcome yes. to my life. <laughs> yes, welcome to my wife's life. She's Unless a it's a technical question. Mm. Oh, yes. I know how to fix computer problems. Rebecca. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, my wife definitely knows computers more than I do. Well. All right. Well, I think it's about time to end part one here. I think so, too. Because he's, he's about to become emperor. Oh, okay. We'll this save good, that. This is a good place to stop. I gotcha. Okay, because there's a lot to come. Oh, boy. Yeah, one of the most fascinating lives ever lived. It's so fat. It's almost inexhaustible. Yes. All right. All right. Well, I guess we don't have to give a teaser for the no. next episode. I, uh, the 37th episode will be uh, part two. Part two, Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. All, All right. right. Well, everyone, have a great holiday. I guess this is our last episode of the year, isn't it? Yeah, the next one will be in January. Wow. Part two, Napoleon. So everyone, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Boxing Day. <laughs> Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. All the above. Yes. So stay well, stay safe, everyone, and until next time. Goodbye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, 
If you want to know what the future holds, study the past.